What is going on? You said you wanted God to send you a hippie. I said that, but I did not mean it. Dad, I am telling you, there's something about this guy. We talked all night. He pretty much blew my mind. I spent the night with him? He could be an axe murderer. Anyone could be an axe murderer. Look, just listen for 10 minutes, and if you think he's crazy, I'll throw him out myself. So, uh, tell me about yourself, Lonnie. And your, uh, people. My people. I like the sound of that. You know, it reminds me of the words of Jesus. To what, then, can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? I was up in San Francisco for a long time, living in Haight-Ashbury, on the streets all over. Man, we did everything and everyone. But that was the point. You see, the drugs, it's a quest. For what? For God. How can you not see that? There is an entire generation right now searching for God. Everyone is accepted here. We love each other freely and without discrimination. There are no facades, no lies, no masks, just a relentless pursuit of the truth by those who have expanded their consciousness. Man, we thought acid was gonna save the world. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. But that was a lie as much of a lie as what we were rebelling against. And what brought you to that realization? I kept searching and searching, and I just finally got to the end of it. And there was still a void. And my people, well, they're a desperate bunch. And desperation. Man, there's power in that word. What would it take for you, Chuck Smith, to be desperate? Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hope. My name is Ashley Lentz. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad you have joined us for worship this morning. Uh, that is a clip from the movie Jesus Revolution. It came out earlier this year. You can find it on Netflix. And that's a conversation between Chuck Smith, a pastor, and um, the hippie Lonnie. And I love how they converse. Chuck Smith has kind of already written off this generation of hippies. He thinks they're crazy. Uh, that there's no, there's no saving the hippies for him. And in this conversation, we learn that actually they're searching for something greater. And uh, Lonnie is kind of this street preacher. He helps bring this revival, the Jesus Revolution, um, that started in California and spread across the United States in the 1970s. And he says, they're looking for God. They're looking for something greater. And he says, Chuck Smith, what would make you desperate? What would make you desperate to know Jesus, to be a Jesus follower? And it seems to me that in our day and age, we don't really need to be desperate for Jesus. Chuck Smith didn't really need to be desperate for Jesus. He was a pastor, but he had safety, security, 
basic needs met. I imagine you got to church today in a reliable vehicle. You're going to go home to a roof over your head. You could probably provide for your family, probably had some breakfast, or you're going to have some breakfast, maybe ate some donuts at the cafe. We don't really need, on a basic need level, to be desperate for Jesus in our day and age, where we live and how we live. And yet that's the call, that we are desperate for Jesus. And that brings us to uh, our letter to the Hebrews. Uh, We have been reading through the whole Holy Bible in a year here at Hope. And most of the summer, we've uh, we've spent our time in New Testament letters. Many of those letters have been written by Paul, but we flip the page today to the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, We begin this new sermon series, Official Epistles from Other Apostles. Say that three times fast. Official epistles from other apostles. Official epistles from other apostles. Official epistles from other apostles. I've had practice. I've preached two other times already. Yeah. This is a really fancy way of saying official letters from other Jesus followers. So where we're at in the New Testament now is a whole bunch of other letters not necessarily written by Paul. And so again, Hebrews is a very interesting book. It is one of my most favorite New Testament books. Like it's about to get really, really good. And I'm super excited to share with you all that Hebrews has to offer. But Hebrews is interesting in that if you've actually been doing your readings with us this week, maybe you started reading this and you thought, this is weird. Like it does not start out very intriguing. And in fact, it's not very applicable to our life today. It would certainly read that way, the first five chapters, actually the first like 10 chapters or so. So it's super important that I set the stage for you to really appreciate Hebrews because it's really, really, really good. It's about to get even better. Hebrews uh, chapters 11, 12, and 13 are some of my favorite in the entire New Testament. Like, it's about to get really good. So let me set the stage for you so that we can really appreciate Hebrews over the next few weeks. I think we're going to preach through Hebrews for the next three weeks or so. So here's what's happening in uh, this letter to the Hebrews. Like I said, we've been reading through other New Testament letters this summer. Uh, Those letters follow a specific format. They are letters of friendship. Paul has written most of them. So uh, many of those letters will start Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, writing to uh, Timothy, writing to Titus, writing to the church in Corinth. And so you know right away who the author is and who the audience is. Then those letters follow a structure for letters in the day. There's a greeting, there's like an opening prayer or a a grateful, praiseworthy thing at the beginning. I'm grateful for you, I've been praying for you. And then Paul will address some issue that the church is facing. And then there's a benediction, an ending. Hebrews follows none of that. There's no formal greeting, there's no body addressing a certain issue. It's just a beautiful piece of literature that's actually a letter but follows no no structural form. So if you started reading it and you're like, this is weird, it is weird, specifically compared to what we've been reading, doesn't follow the same format. We also don't know the author of this letter. There's some uh, speculation about who it could have been. We know it's someone who followed Jesus, an apostle, because they mention it in chapter two, that they spent time with Jesus. So it's someone who has firsthand knowledge and experience of following Christ. Very reliable person, but we don't actually know who it is. Probably definitely not Paul. Uh, Scholars are in consensus about that. We can't say definitely not Paul because we don't actually know who the author is. So it's probably definitely not Paul. Uh, It doesn't sound like Paul. Paul doesn't really write this way. So probably definitely not Paul. 
We don't know who it is. Could be a man, could be a female. There were women who followed Jesus too. So that's where we're left. We have an author who writes beautifully, and they're writing to an audience that, again, is not stated. The author, uh, or the title, tells us something about who this audience probably is. It's the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrew is the describing word for the Israelites who practiced Judaism. So it's this group, this people group, that is a people group, like we are Christians who follow Christ as Christ followers, uh, like a Muslim would practice Islam. Hebrews were Israelites who practiced Judaism. So it's probably a letter to an audience of Jewish Christians, Jewish people who are now following Christ. And we also know that as this letter begins, our author is referencing a whole bunch of Old Testament scripture. Right in chapter 1, we have references to many different Psalms, 2 Samuel, and Deuteronomy. These are Old Testament books that are really important. Jewish people would have known these references from this letter, referring back to Old Testament scripture. So probably, very likely, the audience is Jewish Christians. And now I'm going to give you a look into the structure of this letter, because it's really important that we appreciate what's coming. And this is a look into Ashley's brain this morning, okay? I was going to draw for you on like a whiteboard, but I figured that might just be distracting. So here's my drawing on a PowerPoint slide. I call this the arc of Hebrews, okay? This is the arc of the structure of this letter. Begins with chapters one through six. Right away in chapter one, uh, the author is already pointing us to the end. The author is already going to point us to Jesus. The whole point is that this letter is going to point people to something so much greater. That's Jesus. It's the hope, the joy, the eternal life that comes with knowing Christ. But to do that, our author is going to build a very beautiful, very well-structured argument about why Jesus is the best, why we should fix our eyes there. Okay, so chapters 1 through 6. Again, we're already beginning with the end. For example, uh, our author is going to reference uh, Psalm 102. Psalm 102, this is from Hebrews chapter 1, says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will fold them up like a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same. You will live forever. Right at the beginning, we learn that God is the beginning and the end. Our eyes are already being set on Jesus toward the end. Our author is going to elevate Jesus above angels. That's a big deal to Jewish people. Again, when you and I read this, we're like, what's the big deal about angels? Okay, Jesus is better than, than them. Cool, but why is it important? Well, for Jewish people, back in Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses receives the law from God on Mount Sinai. The Jewish people believed that that law came to Moses through God's messengers, through angels. So the Old Testament law was delivered through angels. Our author is going to show us, and specifically this audience, that Jesus and Jesus' message is far greater than the message that the Jewish people had back in the Old Testament. The message from Jesus delivered by Jesus, the new covenant, is way better than the old covenant, the old law. So Jesus is greater than angels. Then we're going to learn that Jesus is greater than Moses. Why is Moses important? Well, Moses was the leader of God's people. He led them out of slavery in Egypt and into God's promised land. Moses is like the greatest leader that we read about for God's chosen people. Until we get to some of the kings, they're pretty great too. 
But Moses was also the deliverer of the Old Testament law. And our author is going to show us, he's going to tell these people, hey, Jesus is even better than Moses is. It's going to continue chapters 7 through 10. We're going to meet Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a high priest. And Melchizedek is pretty darn cool. We could geek out. I'm geeking out enough as it is, so I won't torture you anymore. But if you want to talk about Melchizedek more, just set up a meeting and we'll talk about Melchizedek. He's a really important priest in the Old Testament, but he doesn't come from the actual line of priests, the Levitical priesthood. We actually don't know Melchizedek's lineage, but he's the greatest priest that we meet in the Old Testament. And our author is going to elevate Jesus above Melchizedek as a high priest. And a high priest is really important. More on that to come in chapter 7 through 10. So you got to come back. Uh, then we learn Jesus is a perfect sacrifice. For Jewish people, sacrifice is really important. If you remember back to Leviticus, anybody remember Leviticus? We covered that at like the beginning of the year. There's a whole book about the laws required for priests to do offerings. So if you were a Jewish person, there were different offerings you did throughout the year. You might sacrifice a dove or an ox or three or whatever it might be, different times of year for different sins, for different reasons, for different festivals. Once a year, a high priest would make all these sacrifices for everybody. It's a big reason why Jesus is considered the highest high priest. But these sacrifices were really important to Jewish people. This is how, uh, this is how they atoned for their sin. And there's a lot of different sacrifices they make. So for our author to elevate Jesus above all of these sacrifices for a Jewish audience, very, very important. Here are some of the few offerings that Jewish people were required to make. Okay, this is from Leviticus chapter 5. I just turned here. Here are the headings of my Bible. Sins requiring a sin offering. Procedures for a guilt offering. Further instructions for a burnt offering. Further instructions for the grain offering. Procedures for the ordination offering. Uh, procedures for a peace offering. The forbidden blood and fat. That's just Leviticus 5. It goes on and on and on about the many, many laws about sacrifice. And Jesus is going to show up and be the one and only, once and for all, eternal sacrifice. So our author is going to beautifully build this argument that just grows and grows and grows until we reach chapters 11, 12, and 13, some of my favorite, where, we, where Jesus stands there. And he's everything anybody could possibly need because he defeats death. He offers us eternal life and hope and joy that all of these other things could not get these people. And for you and me, we're not Jewish. Some of you might have been practicing Jews in the past. That would be super fascinating. Come talk to me. I would love to hear about that. But if you're sitting here this morning, I doubt you are still a practicing Jewish person if you ever had been. So this stuff, for you and for me, doesn't really seem applicable. So I wonder if this author was writing to Lutheran Church of Hope Ankeny on Sunday, October 1st, what would the arc of our letter look like? What would we put on this, in this argument, this author would write to us, that Jesus is greater than? Jesus is greater than my safety and security. Jesus is greater than my income. Jesus is greater than my job or my status. Jesus is greater than my family. None of these are bad things. None of the things I just mentioned are bad things. They're all really good things. And none of them are going to bring us hope forever 
a joy that doesn't waver, or eternal life. Jesus is the only thing that does that. He's greater than anything else we could put on this ark. And that's just me setting the stage for you. That's just what's about to happen in Hebrews. So let's really dive in to Hebrews chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me. The author begins not with a formal greeting, but with beautiful words about who Jesus is. From the beginning, this author wants everyone to know, the original audience and you and me today, that we're looking to Jesus. And this Jesus isn't really normal. He's really, really amazing. In fact, he's God. Here's how Hebrews 1 starts. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. This shows that the sun is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. The sun radiates God's own glory. I don't know what you picture when you think about that. When I picture God's glory, if you've ever seen like a Hubble telescope image of the sun, it looks hot. It's yellow and orange and it's like bubbly kind of. And you can even see like there's the actual sun. You can even see outside the sun, like the impact of the sun. Like you can see the waves kind of. That's an ecstatic picture. This is how I picture God's glory. It is so radiant that you can't even quite look at it. It is so powerful that even as you get sort of close, you feel the power, you feel the heat. This is the Jesus that walked this earth, who intimately knows you and me, who promises to be in relationship with us and never leaves us. He radiates God's own glory, and he is the very character of God. Do you know what the Greek word for character is? It's character. You won't forget that one. Character, as you and I think about it, We often think personality, character, like integrity, like who you are as a person. The Greek word for character does not mean that. The Greek word for character means the exact imprint of. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. If you think about a coin, there were coins in Jesus' day. Often those coins were stamped with the image of the emperor or the Caesar. So when that metal was hot, they would stamp the exact image into that coin so that every coin represented the ruler. We still have coins like that today. That's called a character, the exact imprint. That's who Jesus is. He is the exact imprint of God. And therefore, he is far greater than anything else we might think is important. For the Jewish people, angels. Angels delivered God's message, and our author says, Jesus is way greater than angels, and therefore Jesus' message is way greater than any message angels ever delivered. Oh, and by the way, Jesus is greater than Moses. He's going to continue to strategically build this argument and continue to point people to look for Jesus. Look toward eternity. Look toward the end because it's greater than anything else. Jesus is greater than the greatest high priest. More on that in a couple weeks. And sprinkled 
in between all of these greater than arguments, right at the beginning, our author has warnings to his audience or her audience. Our author says right away, Hebrews chapter 2, we must listen very carefully to the truth we've heard or we may drift away from it. This audience was facing persecution. And in fact, for them, it was probably easier to be a practicing Jewish person to uphold the hundreds and hundreds of laws that they had than it was for them to be a persecuted Christ follower. And so people were slowly drifting away. The Jesus shock factor was waning. It was easier to believe in angels and and uplift Moses and rely on the high priest for the once and for all yearly sacrifice. And so the author says, listen carefully to this truth or we may drift away. Listen to who this guy is. Don't drift. He's greater than anything else you could possibly imagine or follow or believe in. Listen carefully so that you don't drift. It's really easy to drift away. Happens to us all the time. Because life, real life happens. Our author warns again at the beginning of chapter 3. Same warning. So, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven... Think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. Listen carefully. Then our author says, think carefully. You've heard it. You've heard the truth. Are you critically thinking about what that means? You've heard it. Do you know? Are you actually understanding what it means that Jesus is God's actual messenger and the greatest high priest? That Jesus is greater than all this other stuff that's vying for your attention or your belief? Listen carefully, think carefully, and then a few verses later, our author says, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Listen carefully, think carefully. When we listen and think, then the next call is to do, action, to be. So our author says, be careful, live differently, make sure your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. It's really easy for me to read verses like this and say, I'm not evil and unbelieving, doesn't really apply. And then the second half of this says, turning you away from the living God. Turning away from God is the literal definition of sin. And by definition, because you and I aren't God, we're all sinners. We all need God. And so the call is to be careful because drifting happens really easily and being turned away from God is really easy, especially in a world where we don't actually need to be desperate for Jesus. There's a whole bunch of other stuff we can put our faith and our trust and our reliance on. And instead, we are called to be desperate for Jesus because none of those other things are going to give us eternity. They're not going to create for us a permanent home. They're not going to give us hope and joy that lasts forever. So be careful. Think and listen carefully and be careful in what we do and what we say and how we carry ourselves. I'm going to show you another clip from Jesus Revolution. And uh, we meet Greg in this clip. Greg is a, he's been a hippie. He's lived the hippie life. But he kind of has a serious girlfriend and they've gotten involved in the church scene And he bought in. He was really excited about the Jesus thing for a while. 
And then life happens, and things start to pull Greg away. He starts to drift, and he becomes a little bit unsure. And so I want you to watch as he has a conversation with an outsider. There's a journalist who's been covering this Jesus movement, and I want you to watch as the journalist, the person who really doesn't have buy-in, notices what's going on and encourages Greg in his faith journey. Take a look. Thought I'd say goodbye. Yeah? Seems to be going around. Why aren't you in there? I feel like worshiping alone. <laughs> I'm no expert, but I don't think that's how this works. You? Headed back to New York. You know when they gave me this story? I didn't want it. Kind of thought it was beneath me. I cover wars and riots and politics, important things. <laughs> Hippies and Jesus. Now, man, I don't know. Our country is a dark and divided place. But in that tent, there's hope and unity and miracles that I can't even explain. And it's spreading. It's not just here. Where and how far, I'm not sure yet. That's what I'm going to find out. I don't know if any of this is real. I kind of hope it is, to be honest. And even if you can't see it right now, it's a family, man. Don't give up on it. It's my advice anyway. You take care of yourself, Gray. Yeah, you too. Uh, hey, who are you writing this for? Is this like a book or newspaper? A magazine. Which one? Later in the movie, that journalist sends Greg and Chuck the magazine. It's Time magazine, and it's the cover story called The Jesus Revolution. It's called the greatest spiritual awakening to ever happen in the United States. It actually took place in the 1970s. Chuck Smith and Greg Laurie are still pastors today. I love how the journalist says, I wasn't really excited to cover this story. I covered important things like wars and politics. And he says, but there's hope in there. And I kind of hope this is a real thing. It was a real thing. Spread all over the U.S. As we walk our faith journeys, we're called to hold firmly. Our author says in Hebrews 3, for if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Greg had a mountaintop experience as he started to believe. And then life got in the way. Things happened. He wasn't quite sure that Jesus was there for him, that this faith thing was going to pan out, that maybe what he was searching for really wasn't going to be answered by Jesus. And so the shock of Jesus, looking at that glory, it started to fade for Greg. And what's implicit in what our author says here, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, it's like the author knows that for this audience and maybe for you and for me, 
There's a shock to Jesus when we first believe. And then Jesus becomes normal. It's like, woo I know Jesus! You have a mountaintop experience. You learn something new. Someone invites you to church, and you're like, this is cool! And then life. You just keep going day to day. Basic needs are met. You still know Jesus. He still knows you, but he's just kind of a card in your back pocket. All about my Jesus card when I need some help. All about my Jesus card when, you know, something good happens and I remember to give him praise. All about my Jesus card just when, you know, I need a miracle or a prayer or somebody else needs a miracle or a prayer. And he becomes normal. When did Jesus become normal in your life? When did he become average, regular? When did he lose the shock factor? We're talking about God. A God who walked this earth who knows human emotion, who suffered death, an excruciatingly painful death for you and for me, and who intimately knows you. He is not normal. He is not regular. He's not average. This is someone we should be desperate for all the time. Our eyes should always be set on Jesus above everything else. It means that you and I are not normal. We're not average in the best way. Please look at the person next to you and say to them, you're not normal. (laughs) Yeah, you're not normal. That's a really good thing. It's a really good thing that you're not normal. But oh my goodness, does Jesus become normal for us all the time? This is why I love Hebrews so much. Because the author is going to beautifully build this argument about why Jesus isn't normal. About why following him is far from average. About why there is nothing greater for us than to know him. We say around here that Jesus is life. It's a core value at Hope. Jesus is life. The rest is details. He is literally life. I officiated a wedding, yes, or a wedding, a funeral yesterday. Not yesterday, Friday. I've preached like three times now. Okay, I officiated a funeral on Friday. The gospel reading from that funeral was John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. There's many rooms in my father's house, and there's plenty of room for you, and you know the way to where I'm going. And his disciple Thomas, doubting Thomas, says, Lord, no, we don't know how to get there. And Jesus says to Thomas, he doesn't say, yeah, you do. You'll figure it out. What Jesus says to Thomas, he answers the question for all of us. What does it mean that Jesus is life? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am literally the life. Jesus is life, church. Don't take your eyes off of that. There is nothing better. There's nothing more fulfilling. And our author in Hebrews calls us, says, hold firmly and come boldly to the throne of God. Next slide, if you would, please. Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. 
hold firmly and come boldly because we're looking at life. We're looking at eternity. We're looking at something that the world cannot provide. The call is to take action. Hold firmly. Come boldly. Listen carefully. Think carefully. Be careful about this because it matters. It is life. So as we do that, it means that our faith journeys are just that. They are journeys. We actually participate in them, which means that our faith journeys are dynamic. They require our participation. They're not static. We don't stand still. If you feel stuck in your faith journey, three things. Number one, that is okay. Number two, I'm super glad that you are here. And number three, our job as a church community is to make sure you don't stay stuck. Because when we're stuck or static in our faith journey, it means we stop growing. That's where drifting happens. That's where the other stuff of the world can easily pull us away. It's really intriguing. We move on these journeys. And our faith journeys do not look like the literary structure of Hebrews where we just walk up and meet Jesus. Our faith journeys are long and winding roads. They have ups, they have downs, they have mountains, they have valleys. It's a continuous journey. But we do the journey. We participate in it because our eyes are set on Jesus and we know that there is nothing better. I told you Hebrews is going to get a lot better. From Hebrews chapter 12, one of my favorite verses, we do this, we walk our journeys, we continue to follow Jesus. We keep our eyes on him, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. The champion, Jesus is the champion who begins, initiates, and perfects our faith. Uh, last weekend, Pastor Scott preached on uh, the perfectionism crisis that we are seeing. And if you haven't heard that message, go back and listen on YouTube or the podcast. He was preaching like right to me as a recovering perfectionist. That's not something to be proud of. But we live in a world where we think we need to do these things perfectly. Like if I'm not going to be the perfect prayer, then why even try? If I can't come to church every week, then why come at all? Do you know what the actual word for perfect is? Our author in Hebrews is going to use it like three or four more times. Jesus uses it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This Greek word is not what you and I think perfect means. It's the Greek word teleos, from the root telos. Telos means end, and teleos means complete. How do we walk our faith journeys keeping our eyes on Jesus? He initiates, he begins, and he perfects, he completes. He begins and completes, ends our faith. He accomplishes everything. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be complete as God has called you to be complete in him. Jesus is literally the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega the initiator and the perfecter or the completer of our faith. As we keep our eyes on him, he does all the work for us. We're called to just continue to walk, to be on that journey alongside him. These are pictures from cathedrals around the world. I've had a, the opportunity to be in Germany, France, and Italy. And we don't build cathedrals like this anymore. 
but they're built so that when you walk in, your eyes immediately go up to the vaults in the ceiling. And do you know what every single one of these churches has hanging? Immediately when you walk in or immediately down that vault line, it's Jesus on a cross. It's so that your eyes go to him immediately. We're not gonna hang a giant crucifix in here anytime soon. And our building is not designed so that you walk in and you look up. But I hope that when you walk into this place, you see Jesus around you all the time. And even more than that, when you leave here, you keep your eyes on Jesus who's around you all the time. He completes our faith. He begins it. He ends it. He is everything. He is life. Don't miss that, church. There is nothing greater. He is above everything, and the invitation is to all of us. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep walking the journey. It's not always easy, but he's with you all the time. He is hope. He is joy. He's eternity, and he is for you. And we celebrate this really good news when we take communion together.